0: So if that sounds like something you want to listen to, keep listening.
1: Hey,
0: this is Lisa, and you're listening to I Love That Movie. Um, and if you like what you heard today, please remember to subscribe and rate the show. And if you want to catch up with me, I'm on Twitter under AYA Lisa Cosplay, and I've also got, and I love that movie account. It's just the initials ILTM. Um, we, I've also got an Instagram. I love that movie podcast as well as my personal one AYANAMI Lisa. Um, And we have a closed Facebook group called I Love That Movie. It's just a safe space for movie lovers to discuss their favorite films, judgment-free. My only rule in there is keep it positive, but we have a lot of fun in there. And as far as upcoming events, on June 15th at 3.30 at ArlingCon, I will have a panel. And this one's going to be a little bit different uh, instead of our live episode, I'm just going to do a Q&A. So basically, I'm going to introduce, you know, my show and talk about how I got there, my journey there, and then take your guys' questions. So please come armed with questions. I would love to hear from you. Um, and, you know, as always, you guys can reach out to me anytime. So not limited to just this uh, <laughs> panel, but, but please come down and see me. It's free. So yeah, I'll, I'll add some links to the description. Um, and I have a new guest with me here today. I have Chase. Say hi, Chase.
2: Howdy, everyone.
0: Hey, Chase. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm excited. We've, we've talked about having you on the show, I think a couple months ago, a few months ago, and it's finally happening. And I'm so excited. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit to the audience?
2: Sure. So my name is Chase McKinney and um, I'm in the cosplay community. Um, you can find me under sharp cosplay on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, not so much Twitter, mainly Instagram and Facebook, um, do a lot of star Trek cosplay as well as uh, doctor who cosplay. And, um, apart from that, I'm just super excited to be here. This is like a dream come true. Being able to talk about my absolute favorite movie that I think I've seen close to 200 times without exaggerating.
0: Oh my gosh. It's and- awesome. <laughs> I love it.
2: And that is the 1996 movie Star Trek: First Contact.
0: Ugh, I'm so excited. Um, I I, I love this film so much, and uh, it's probably no secret on my social media that I'm a huge Trekkie. Um, but before I launch into my background with Star Trek, Chase, why don't why don't you launch into? You said you've seen this movie 200 times, so the first time I'm assuming you saw it in theaters, right?
2: That is a negative ghostwriter. Ah. So, so, um, I, it was kind of weird how I came about Star Trek. Um, I didn't watch it when it was actually on the air. Okay. Uh, I, I can kind of remember watching it in syndication at my uncle's house where he'd be working on stuff and I just had nothing better to do. And, um, I remember seeing this like bald British guy in some like weird cybernetic thing and having nightmares for months. <laughs> I'm talking about when, when Picard became Lacutus of Borg, that was absolutely terrifying. Um, and then I remember being very ignorant, um, going to see um, Star Trek Insurrection, the movie that okay. came after First Contact, in 98 with my best friend and his mother. And I kept asking him, like, where are the lightsabers? Like, why? <laughs> why aren't there any lightsabers? Like, what's going on? Why are they like shooting these laser beams? Um and it wasn't it wasn't until college. So um I was in college, I really started watching Star Trek on Spike TV, which isn't even around anymore.
0: Oh wow, uh, you're right. I haven't I haven't thought about Spike TV in a long time. Oh my gosh.
2: So um every day that I got done with classes, um, there was constantly a marathon of Star Trek the Next Generation on Spike TV for probably three to four hours. So I just started watching it fell in love with it, and um, it was shortly after that that my obsession just grew and grew more and more, Um, and that was about the time that um, I started finding all these movies on VHS and just started collecting them. Um, I I started out finding all the original series movies and um, then finally came across First Contact on VHS, watched it, I, I literally finished it and then I pulled it out, rewound it on our little rewinder thing. Looked like a car. <laughs> I had one of those. <laughs> and put it back in and I watched it again. I think I rinsed and repeated that movie probably four times in one day.
0: Wow. That's awesome. And,
2: which then led to even more obsession and getting more into the lore, the culture of Star Trek. And uh, my mom was living in Las Vegas Uh, While I was still in college, so um, whenever I went to visit her, I was like, "Mom, can can we go to the Hilton so I can check out uh, Star Trek: The Experience?" And um, that just solidified it for me. Like I was just, I felt like I was, you know, a dyed-in-the-wool Trekkie, even though I came so late in the game. I mean, like it was already off the air. Like all of Star Trek TV shows were off the air by 2006. But that's kind of how I got into it, kind of late in the game.
0: Well, I mean, for me, uh, my love for comic books is kind of like that. Uh, I didn't really start reading superhero comics until the last few years. And I always feel like I'm so late to the party. So I I totally, that part of that resonates with me. Um, I believe I saw First Contact in theaters. So I would have been, I guess, 13 when it came out. By that time, I was pretty... Pretty all in because I think I'm trying to remember, like when my Star Trek journey started, Um, it was definitely because of my best friend Kara, who you guys have heard on this podcast a bunch of times. Um, She was the big Trekkie. She was a hardcore original series fan Um, and she would watch it all the time and it didn't resonate with me at all. I did watch The Next Generation, but only because it was really big at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was everywhere. People watched it like, Game of, like they do Game of Thrones now, almost. I mean, it was like The Next Generation was really, it, it seemed more accepted, you know, than the old one. And so it was in my peripheral. Like, I did watch it with my mom, which is crazy to think about now, my mom watching anything sci-fi related. <laughs> um, but she liked it. I mean, people just liked that show. And so I would watch it. But I wouldn't say that I was a huge fan. I remember my dad and my uncle, same story I tell on every episode, watching all the original series movies and me thinking like, ugh, these are boring, Uh, these are the old ones, I don't care. And it wasn't actually until... I I was kind of trying to relate to my friend Kara, and I thought, oh, you know, I'll, I'll try to find a Star Trek that resonates with me. And I found Deep Space Nine. And I fell in love with Deep Space Nine. I was immediately drawn to it. I became crazily obsessed with it. And that sort of just opened up my world to everything else. And so I was a fan from then on. Uh, mm-hmm. The first convention that I ever went to, I was I 12 or 13 and I went to a Star Trek convention. Uh, we actually went and met William Shatner. Um, and I'm trying to remember if anybody else was there. But it was a big deal. And then I remember from then on, I was just like hooked. And I went to uh, the Grand Slam, which used to be in Pasadena, California, when I was 16. It had literally like everybody, like the entire Voyager cast, you know, most of the Deep Space Nine cast, Next Generation, Mm -hmm. everybody. I saved up all my money that I made over the summer just so I could go. (laughs) And, uh, and I've just, you know, that that was my introduction into I guess fandoms in general. I mean, that's what led to me liking anime and science fiction and everything. So uh, I I was hardcore all in. I had the encyclopedia. I I have the omnipedia. I still have that. Um, And I had, yeah, it was was kind of, it got a little (laughs) overboard. Like I used to collect all the magazines. I had all the Star Trek novels, at least the Deep Space Nine ones. I read all those. Um, And I used to collect trading cards that they had. Um, they used to sell at, like, the mall, like, kiosks. They would have, like... Do you remember this? Like, where there used to be, like, cards from different shows, almost like baseball cards? Okay, I had a ton of those in, like, clear little, you know, pockets. I mean, I was nuts. I think it was a precursor to me eventually having a podcast because I would do so much research. I put in air quotes. Like, mindless (laughs) waste of time accumulating knowledge about Star (laughs) Trek. But I was a huge fan. So this movie... I loved so much. It's definitely my favorite Next Generation movie, hands down, and Absolutely. arguably, I think one of the best movies, uh, Star Trek movies in general. Um, so I'm I, with I, you there.
2: I think there's like a constant, like fan war of which one's better.
1: Uh huh. Yeah. First
2: Contact or Wrath of Khan. And I <laughs> think, Wrath of Khan and is like, good. <laughs> and if it's not Wrath of Khan, it's either First Contact or Voyage Home. I yeah. mean, yeah. those all three of those are arguably amazing. No, actually, not arguably. They are just flat out amazing Star Trek films.
0: Yeah. And I think what makes this one unique to those other two you mentioned, too, is that I feel that this movie is for people that are Star Trek fans and people that are not Star Trek fans. I mean, I think this one kind of trips a line of being of having that crossover appeal that maybe some of those older movies and even some of the other Next Generation films don't necessarily have. I think that's why it's been so popular.
2: So, when you were talking about Deep Space Nine, like, I was originally introduced to Deep Space Nine also on Spike TV. Oh, wow. And, and I remember being bored out of my mind watching it. <laughs> That's what it.
0: most people say. Yep.
2: <laughs> and I was like, man, like, how, how is this a show? Like, <laughs> and, but like, you know, fast forward to this past August, and I'm like, I feel like there's like a, a hole in my heart for Star Trek i need to like see this show through to the end so this past august i actually started watching deep space nine and it is it is now officially my second favorite star trek series like it is such an amazing show like the first two and a half seasons i feel are pretty slow going Mm -hmm. but once you hit three especially the midpoint of season three it just takes off and it and it's like you can't get off it's just it's phenomenal. But we're not here to talk about Deep Space
0: Nine. <laughs> yeah, because I could wax poetic about that all day. However, we're here to talk about First Contact. And um, I will say, my last thought about D Space Nine, though, because I have to I have to <laughs> plug this in really fast. I think that we're in a headspace now as a society where we're ready for Deep Space Nine. Because I think it really stood apart from Next Generation and TOS in that it it was sort of a, a show that had a... A through line. There was like a long, overarching plot, and you had to really pay attention and be there every week for it. That's pretty different from the uh, villain of the week that you used to have with the other Star Treks, and so that played into I think it feeling boring at the time. And now I feel like we're kind of into that sort of TV uh, because people have like Netflix where they can binge and things like that. (laughs) So I think it, it 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 was the wrong place, wrong time. It would have probably done better now. But anyway, back to first contact.
2: Um, well, and even even before we get into that, like one other thing that I remember um, when I was still, I think I was in like 10th grade, maybe 11th grade, uh, one of my English classes, my uh, teacher at the time had us uh, watch this documentary called Trekkies.
0: Oh, and, I've seen that one.
2: And <laughs> we had to like write like a reaction paper to it, like related to groupthink or you know, identity or some cooked up reason or whatever it was. Yeah. And I, I can remember, I'm like, man, these people are just like weird and they are so <laughs> dedicated. <laughs> and I've since watched it like a couple more times. I'm like, yeah, I get it. Like, yeah, I'm that guy now. Like, I and, and I'm not even ashamed by it. And no,
0: I feel like that. I think that documentary is actually pretty moving. Like, I cried watching I it. it. Yeah.
2: I love that. <laughs> like, it's great. And then like Trekkie's 2, I think, the follow-up documentary. Oh yeah, I've seen that one too. It's just as good.
0: It is. I think yeah, it 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 is something maybe it's hard for me to be objective about because I definitely identify with them heavily. But yes. also I think um One of my main, you know, hopes with even doing this podcast is for people to understand why a movie or a franchise or whatever it is can have such a deep impact on someone's life in a positive way without making them look quote unquote crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, hopefully our our listeners can walk walk away with that. Uh, They may walk away thinking I'm crazier than they thought hearing all those Star Trek it's okay. We're all crazy here. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, so yeah. So let's dive into into this movie. Um, before we get started, I'm just going to read the synopsis real quick. So here we go. Uh, First contact, 1996. The Enterprise and its crew follow a Borg ship through a time warp to prevent the Borg from taking over the Earth in a past era. Stuck in the past, Geordie LaForge helps a pioneer of space travel in his efforts to create the first warp drive, while Captain Picard and Commander Data battle the Borg Queen as she tries to take over the Enterprise. In a nutshell, but we'll, we'll dive into it. That's
2: a very <laughs> oversimplified plot <It> <laughs> synopsis.
0: <laughs> and by the way, guys, this is not spoiler-free, as I always say, so if you if you don't want to know what happens, go back and watch the movie otherwise prepare to be spoiled Um, it's only been
2: 23 years
0: (laughs) right you've had time okay (laughs) um so i'm gonna say a couple quick facts and you can jump in if you have some thoughts on that or even if you have a fact you want to jump in as well uh the first one i have is that although his name is never given in the movie according to star trek canon the vulcan who salutes zephyrm cochran is uh solcar as mentioned in Star Trek Three, the search for Spock, Solkar is the father of Sarek and subsequently the grandfather of Spock. Did you know about that connection?
2: I did, and I thought it was—I thought it was a more distant connection. I thought it was like ah. a great rate uh, When I had originally read that, okay, um, we I may could need to fact but...
0: check. I mean, it's—I got this off IMDb, so it could be wrong too. I'm sure someone out uh, there will know. <laughs>
2: I mean, I, I might have gotten mine off Wikipedia, so we'll go with IMDb. I mean, okay. that's probably more refereed than Wikipedia.
0: Maybe, <laughs> maybe. I think both can be edited, so we'll see. Somebody out there knows. <laughs> right. Um, I also had that James Cromwell became the first actor in Star Trek history to actually utter the phrase Star Trek.
2: That I did know. Mm-hmm. Yes. And there was, and I, I had also heard that there was. Um, A little bit of tension regarding his casting, oh, uh, because of uh, and I I can't remember the original series episode, but when Zefram Cochrane was actually in an episode, the character Zefram Cochrane was in an episode. He was much younger. He had the appearance of like a twenty or thirty something.
0: Yeah, I saw a clip in the in the special features, and he also like was surprised to see Kirk and didn't know what the Federation was. But then in this movie. I mean they explain who they are so even before he makes the warp drive he would have known but then me and my husband sat around going well what what are the rules about time travel here because it's like maybe this is before that time you know right but but you're right like I didn't even think of that part he's significantly older than that actor yeah
2: and I think I think that the way they got around that was something to do with like the radiation stuff from either the phoenix or from developing warp drive or world war three it it had something to do with like that era and all the war and the conflict that was going on from what i i remember reading somewhere
0: yeah i mean honestly before i saw these special features i didn't even realize that uh zephyrm cochran was in an original series episode so that was news to me okay um and then the third thing that i have was that one of the reasons jonathan franks was chosen to direct was because uh, the producers wanted someone who understood Star Trek. Amongst the cast, he was a series' most prolific director. Reportedly, Ridley Scott and John McTiernan turned down the chance to direct.
2: That would have been really interesting to have Ridley Scott done this film.
0: I know, especially because, I mean, there is something vaguely aliens-esque about about the Borg's look. Like, I, I got those vibes watching it.
2: And that was the thing that they they were trying to avoid with um, how they were framing shots, um, mm. like with angles and with how they were um, going about the creation of the Borg Queen. Originally, there wasn't going to be a Borg Queen. It oh. was it was just going to continue along with the you know collective consciousness, the hive mind type of thing, and the the writers, from what I understand. We're like, well, this is going to get boring real quick um, because it's just dialogue, basically. And
1: mm-hmm.
2: and just like this, you know, combination of everyone talking at once. And they're like, well, how the heck are we going to um, make it to where we can have some kind of interaction? And that's where it necessitated the creation of the board Queen, which is where we have um, Alice. Is it Krieg? Kriege? I don't even know how to pronounce her name. But anyways, the the lady that portrayed the Borg Queen, that's the reason she was created. And in her creation, um, they were they were very much aware of like all the alien films and making sure she didn't look too much like that. Um, So that's where like the whole um, like wires coming out of her head thing was to give her like more of like an alien type of hairstyle Mm. and having like the gray skin to where she was more human but also had like that horror vibe that you would know and and be able to recognize from like Alien or other films from like the '70s and '80s, basically.
0: Yeah, no, I can definitely see that influence. But I, I think it does stand apart enough, like you're saying, it's not a direct copy or anything like that. Um, I also I, I have to admit something, guys. When I when I was watching this this time, and I've never looked into who directed it in all these years. I I hadn't thought about this movie in a while, and I was like. Maybe this movie is so good because it doesn't necessarily have, like, it, it almost felt like somebody else directed it, like somebody not in the franchise, or maybe it was written by somebody not in the franchise, and that could not be further from the truth. Uh, it was directed by Jonathan Frakes, and it was also written by Rick Berman, Ronald D. Moore, and Brandon Braga, if any of you guys recognize those names, they're... Uh, very involved in Star Trek so I don't know I just found that interesting but I, I will say that I feel like some of the best Star Trek movies were directed by an insider somebody who really understood the franchise like with Spock you know with Leonard Nimoy. I,
2: I think it's I think it's um, a testament to uh, the first officers
1: mm-hmm. that
2: they're the ones that are producing some of the best uh, you know they're producing some of the best Star Trek films. Oh that's I mean, true. So we had Leonard Nimoy with Wrath of Khan. Like we had like the whole Spock trilogy, really. Yeah. The Wrath of Khan, Search for Spock, Voyage Home. Um, actually, I take that back. Sur- um, Voyage Home and Search for Spock were both Leonard Nimoy. I take mm-hmm. that back. But still, like two of the three were directed by a first officer. Yeah. And then you had, um, obviously, First Contact directed by Jonathan Frakes, who's number one. I mean, he, he without being too funny or trying to be too funny, I mean, he really made it so yeah. with this um, I mean he he did a fantastic job of going from um, very cerebral with generations to being more um, somewhere in the middle with being loyal to the trek fandom and also creating a way to bring other to bring outsiders in basically to the trek franchise
0: yeah I feel like it's so hard when you try to do a uh a plot where it brings other people in or even other alien races. Like I've noticed some of the next generation movies where it was on a different planet and about another race on the planet. It starts to feel like an episode a little bit. It's like, it doesn't have the same, gravity that say this movie does so i think he knew that he's like i've got to keep it sort of about earth about humans and how do i do that and still introduce new characters and exciting concepts and i feel like i don't know this plot was pretty perfect for that
2: absolutely absolutely
0: yeah oh and the last thing i want to highlight before we talk about the movie itself um i i watched a behind the scenes little featurette about jerry goldsmith who, if some of you out there don't know, I think he got his start with either Alien or Aliens composing that um, for that movie, and he did uh, Star Trek: The Motion Picture. Um, and basically, when they were coming up with a, a theme for Next Generation, uh, one of the younger producers wanted to go with with him instead, with to instead of going with like the original series. Um, theme and so they called jerry goldsmith and he and did the theme from star trek the motion picture so i didn't realize like that we had already heard that theme um i guess i just kind of forgotten over the years and then they asked him to come back for this movie and he did although he was pretty busy so a lot of a lot of it was also done by his son joel goldsmith and so like together they kind of composed everything for this movie and Oh, there's just something about his stamp on the franchise that, like, just hearing the theme songs makes me emotional, and so watching that tribute was really, really cool.
2: So yeah, we we have to talk about the score. Mm-hmm. This, um, and before before I talk about the first contact score, um, I, back to like whenever I was a brand new um, infant with Star Trek, um, and I was like super excited about next gen and talking to like my friends about it. Uh, that were just as into it as or more into it than I was Um, they're like oh yeah you didn't know that that was the the Star Trek the motion picture thing I'm like no they're like yeah they totally ripped (laughs) it off I'm like no they didn't and they're like no you need to go watch it so I did I'm like I guess you're right
0: (laughs) (laughs) well I mean even I forgot that and I own all the original Star Trek movies and I've watched them a bunch of times but I kind of forgot that <laughs> so yeah. I mean you just it, it became the next generation theme so much so I think it's easy to forget that we'd heard it before
2: right and and for those that you know were born in like the late 70s early to mid 80s you know whenever the show was coming out or you know being produced and and being put out on on tv they wouldn't have known that like if yeah. their parents didn't have it like on laser disc or VHS <laughs> or something I mean, there would be no way of knowing unless you went to like Blockbuster, you know, and rented the dang thing.
0: Right. And I think, again, uh, the original series at that time felt old to me. And, and, you know, in the movies, they're older. And so I didn't have that connection back then. I I would Mm -hmm. say that's changed dramatically now. But when I was a young person, I wasn't really paying attention to stuff like that. So, yeah, it was new to me. So you're not alone.
2: (laughs) So with the score um, like that is the one thing that, um, I really judge a movie by is their score. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of the music that I listen to nowadays is some kind of orchestra, um, or orchestral arrangement, a, a film score, a video game score. Um, that's just, that's just what I enjoy listening to now in my thirties. Um, I still enjoy other stuff, but that's just my bread and butter is just like those kinds of arrangements. And I can remember, you know, in 2006, 2007, um, you know, a couple years removed from being um, in high school, I would volunteer with the marching band and I was friends with like who the new um, like drum majors would be. And I was like, Hey, I just heard this song. I'm wondering if you can show me how you would conduct this. And um, I would play, uh, it would be either the opening theme Or it would be the end credits theme of Star Trek First Contact, which is which is also my ringtone for my cell phone right now. (laughs) Awesome. Um, And they would show me like these are the motions. These are the movements that you would do um, if you were directing a band to do this. And I just I loved seeing someone conducting it in front of me, even though there were no instruments. Like it was just like me, you know, playing the CD in my car CD player with the windows down and they'd show me how to do it. And there's just something about the, the first contact theme, um, that just gets me so emotional. Um, and it's, there are no words to be able to begin to describe like the feelings that I feel whenever I hear it. Um, like the music like the way that it moves you in and the way that it's arranged it's it communicates something and it's like this very hopeful optimistic yearning type of thing this essence about it that i just can't get enough of it and i just i love listening to it over and over and over again
0: When I was younger, I tried to learn the Deep Space Nine theme on the piano, even though I can't even play piano, so I feel you. (laughs) Um, Yeah, well, no, I mean, I I don't think there's enough good things we can say about Jerry Goldsmith and his stamp on the franchise. I think your sentiments are widely shared, I mean, as I saw in the tribute, and it's one of those things where maybe I couldn't recall his name off the top of my head, but he had a huge impact on me uh, just because of all the scores that he came up with and how much that connects me to a certain time and place when I hear it. So I, I definitely am with you on that. Right. Um, with that being said, uh, let's dive into the movie itself. Uh, do you want to talk about some some of your favorite scenes from the
1: film?
2: There are so many. <laughs> um, there are so many that I just enjoy. Um, I don't even know where to start. Um, I mean the, I felt, I, I really enjoyed, I guess we'll start at the beginning. How about that? When you, after, after the opening credits end and it, it fades to black and then you fade in to, um, Picard, um, in like a little drone station on the, I think it's the cube. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's like an immediate callback to the terror that, um, he went through that he caused and that everyone witnessed in Best of Both Worlds, Volume One and Two, which was, I believe, uh, six years prior to that, six or seven years prior to that. Um, the way they shot that, I thought was brilliant. And I, I read somewhere that it that that was the last scene, like that whole shot. So, with um, like next generation era Picard, like his uniform. Um, transitioning to him in his ready room where he's taking his nap, that whole scene took 60 days to shoot. Wow. And it was the last scene that was shot um, in production, in that production block. Um, And I I thought it was brilliant, especially like that little effect spoiler with um, like that, whatever it was, that mechanical claw thing that pops out of his cheek
0: oh yeah that
2: scared the bejesus out of me me too
0: <laughs> when i walked
2: it for the first time
0: yeah there's definitely a big horror aspect to this movie as you mentioned earlier uh that you don't necessarily see in some of the other films and what's cool about that scene too is it really establishes who the borg are for those of us that may not have that background with um star trek i mean i did at the time but i'm just saying your layperson. Um, You know, I was watching behind the scenes, they were talking about the layperson knows what Warp Drive is. Um, They're aware of, you know, some certain aspects of the show, but explaining who the Borg are and where they come from is a really cool way to open the movie. And also the Borg is like, not uniquely Next Generation. I mean... Later on, uh, we saw the Borg in, like, Voyager and other places, but, I mean, this was the big bad guy from the next generation, so this this is the perfect, you know, movie villain for them to explore and have, and so I just, I like that it starts off this way, and it kind of reminds me a little bit of the way that DS9 started with, you know, that's how you, you meet Sisko, you find out that his family was killed in one of the, like, Borg wars that Locutus was a part of, and... I just think that that's such a strong like visual. It's just something that I really like that they started this movie off with,
2: right? Yeah, the the Battle of Wolf Three Five Nine, which yeah. is what what Locutus was. I mean, Picard, Lacutus, whatever you want to call him, was responsible for. I mean, he was like he was the reason for um, the decimation of like that sector and that portion of the quadrant for most of the fleet, um, the families, the lives that were lost and you know, what follows in the TV show is how he's responding to that with his own brother and his own family. Like, Mm -hmm. I've been this virtuous man. And, you know, I've lived by this code and this this form of these forms of morals or whatever you want to call it. And yet he's exacted this dread, this terror on so many lives, so many people that have trusted him and worked with him and you know, put they put each put each other's lives in each other's hands, and yet this has happened.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And it, it's just it's it's sickening. It, it's heartbreaking to not only see that in the show, but to see a continuation continuation of that um, in the movie. Yeah. And and you were saying that the Borg were like the big bad of the um, of the next gen. I don't know if you knew this, but um, the Ferengi were actually meant to be the big bad of the entirety of the next generation.
0: Wow. I did not know that. That's interesting.
2: So whenever they were first introduced in season one of next gen, I mean, the way they did, they just came off was way too comical. There was yeah. no, <laughs> no threat with them. I mean, they had like these like weird, like snake thunder things or snake lightning sword. I don't even know what they're called, but like, just they look like a, like a swatch. They just <laughs> had like lightning come out of it or something. <laughs>
0: But, well, they're so yeah. tiny, yeah. It's like the, they're not imposing. No,
2: no, but the, the Ferengi were supposed to be that, and like it was born out of necessity in the show that um, the Borg were created. I think in what was that season two?
0: Yeah, and and by Gene Roddenberry, which I didn't realize until I was watching the behind the scenes of this that he actually came up with that concept.
2: hmm. And then they were fully real. They were basically fully realized in um, Best of Both Worlds, and then yeah. You know, had that that front that front and center um, aspect about them in this movie with First Contact.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting to watch some of the behind the scenes with the cast talking about the Borg, and you know, like fears with technology and how technology is taking over our lives. And I'm thinking, ha ha ha, that's 1996. You have no idea what's coming. <laughs> <laughs> Wonder well, how they would how they feel about it
1: now. <laughs>
2: Well, I know we were talking about it um, pre-show a little bit, but um, I can remember going to Star Trek The Experience and doing all the stuff that was there, like checking oh, out Quark's so Bar. Cool. so jealous. Yeah, that was before it shut down in 2008, I believe. It was, when was when a it while
1: down. ago,
2: yeah. yeah. So I went in 2006 and 2007, and I did all the rides that they had there, which were two. There were two rides. Um, And they were awesome. Um, But the one with the Borg was even more terrifying than the TV shows and the movies. Um, I mean, you knew that these people were actors wearing like these prosthetics and like this costume and stuff. But like with the lighting and everything, I'm like, like, oh, my God, I'm going to be assimilated. And (laughs) like it was terrifying. And I thought I was scared of the Borg just sitting in my chair in my living room. You know, watching mm-hmm. this. Um, I mean, the Star Trek: The Experience was absolutely wonderful for everyone that was able to go while it was still open. And you know, there's a part at the the beginning where you see the progression, the evolution of um, Starfleet and the United Federation of Planets. You see it go from. The Enterprise era with Jonathan Archer and his crew um, through their their mission to Kirk, all the way through the end. Um, They at one point they had some pictures of the Enterprise J, which was an Enterprise, Um, and they had like this big giant Enterprise um, D that was like hanging there right in the center. It looked like it was probably like, the model that they used for, like, all the the shots they did in the show. Mm-hmm. And then they also had, like, a big old giant, giant Voyager ship hanging also. And it looked like, if you've seen uh, These Are the Voyages, which is the c- series finale of Enterprise, there's this, um, the, the place where Jonathan Archer stands, like, the way that that stage is, was very similar to the way that it was laid out at Star Trek The Experience. Mm. and it was it was so neat. and uh, I know we're not talking about the shows, but um, uh, the same so um, um, zephron Co- Cochran, the guy that played him, um, whenever he was approached to reach to do a scene for Star Trek Enterprise, um, His costume was actually missing from Star Trek. The experience oh, so his no. his well No, his actual costume was there on display uh-huh. and they took it out of the display to give back to him for him to shoot the in a mirror darkly episode which was Them doing the alternate take on first contact.
0: I see. So, yeah, they mentioned that some of the behind the scenes.
2: Yeah so it was it was really cool. They're like, "Well, why do you think it's missing?" Well, maybe they're shooting it, or they just got done shooting it, you know. And it it was it was pretty cool. So, yeah.
0: That's awesome. I, you know, I never got to go to the experience. By the time I went to Vegas, that was gone. But I was very sad about it. My friend Kara did get to go, and she she reported. I still have. Oh my god, this is so embarrassing. I need to find it. Um, I found it earlier this year, but she she sent me a postcard from there. And It's a picture of Odo and then on the back is just her describing her experience at the (laughs) And I found it the other day and I was like, oh my god I took a picture and sent it to her and she was like, oh my gosh I'm such a dork and I was like, I love that you sent me this and I still have it. So it's amazing
2: (laughs) I so at the shop there I bought um, a next-generation TV show Com badge and it's it's like super shiny (laughs) And it's like really flat and so it doesn't look like you would actually wear it like as part of like a cosplay or costume, whatever. Um, but I still have that it's in my nightstand in my room and I look at it fondly. Like part of the clip is like broken a little bit and like bent in. Um, but that's like the last like souvenir that I have, uh, from Star Trek, the experience. But one thing that I'm I'm very pleased that I I paid the extra money to do was the VIP tour where they take you behind and they show you how they make all the magic happen at Star Trek, the experience. And the very end, they take you down this like secret hallway and there's like this big giant room or there was this big giant room and they have this guest book and you can sign your name. So I don't know who ended up with the book, but there's a part of me that is in a piece of, Star Trek: The Experience, and seeing like all these like rare TV guides, like with like Star Trek characters and stuff, like from Next Gen, Deep Space Nine, start or original Star Trek, Voyager. um, It was it was really magical, and then watching the um, like some of the special features on the DVD, like with the last day of the experience, just broke my heart like I cry and blubber like a baby every single time that I watch that and I, I tell myself it's not gonna happen this time <laughs> and guess what it happens
0: yeah it's just the nostalgia I feel like it's just you know you felt so connected to that I used to collect a lot of the tv guides which is weird to think about now that like that that was a thing that was a big important thing um, and I used to buy them and put them in like little baggies to like try to save yeah. them. I have no idea what happened to those.
2: Do we, <laughs> do we mean, need to tell the kids? Do we need to tell the kids listening what a TV guide is?
0: It's uh, probably a good point. So we didn't <laughs> used to have Roku's and Apple TVs and everything else, and things came on at a certain time, and if you missed it, you missed it forever. So bet you, um, so you better buy a TV guide. And that will give you all the information you need about everything that's coming out. I think they were weekly, right? It's just like one week or something like that, or was yeah, it they, monthly?
2: No, they they were weekly, and, <laughs> and so much like, paper. And just like you know, when we watch it, like on our our DVRs or you know on PlayStation View, like whatever you use to watch TV, now, um, you know, like on there, you'd have the the description of like what was going to happen. Every week, you would see this like tiny little point zero five font size <laughs>
1: description
2: yeah. of like what the episode was going to be about, and it was a pain in the rear end to to read and try and decipher what it was saying.
0: Right, and I mean, you could also—I think you could also check the newspaper. Is that right?
2: What's a newspaper? Yeah, you should check the <laughs> yeah, <newspaper. laughs>
0: like the in like the day of, you could like look at the newspaper and see it was going to be on too. But it was like a more con- like a. More generic form of what was in there, I believe, but yes. I don't know. I'm I'm diving deep into my childhood, trying to remember that. Um, I remember it vaguely, but yeah, yeah. Well, back to this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Segwayed a little bit there, but that's okay. That's what we do on this show. What What's the next scene that uh, that stands out to you?
2: Um, th- there there's so many that that stand out. I mean, there's so many good scenes. I think the the next one is when when the attack on um, Bozeman happens, and um, the Enterprise, um, I think it's like Picard, Data, uh, Doctor Crusher, handful of others. They all beam down to Bozeman at the missile complex to make sure that people are okay. And to make sure that uh, the Phoenix is still intact. Like, is there, is their future already over with?
0: Yeah. I forgot about that part of the movie when I was rewatching it, I was like, Oh yeah. Like there's a part where they're not sure if that ship's even still there.
2: And one thing that I really liked, and if it almost seems like, like it might not be that important, but you know the part where um, Picard and Data are um, in the location where the Phoenix is housed, and Picard, who is this Renaissance man of sorts, just is starting to touch. He's starting to touch the Phoenix. And Data, Data um, asks, like, "Does your perception of the Phoenix change just by touching it?" Mm. And and he's like, yeah, of course it changes. I mean, and then data goes into this cold calculating, uh, you know, description of like whatever he's experiencing by touching the phoenix. And I think like the idea of touch and, you know, having that connection with not just, um, you know, experiences like the phoenix or like whatever it might be, but also with people is important. It's something that we don't really think about or or really give A lot of credence to nowadays like we're we're becoming more and more disconnected with each other and you have to be more intentional With that connection with other people
0: I'm glad you mentioned that because I don't think I I don't think I walked away with that message watching that scene So now that you break it down that way I I don't know. I really like that. Um, I hadn't thought about it I I like data's reaction to it. Like you said, it's so dramatically different from picard's um, mm-hmm. and, and it is interesting to think about what that would be like to visit a moment in time that you haven't gotten to experience because of time travel um, and how that would change your entire perception of an event or of an object even just, you know, he he may have touched it in the future, you know, in his time, but he never got to actually experience it one-on-one the way he did then.
2: Right. Right. And I know I'm putting you on the spot by asking this, but I mean, if you you know, could create some kind of temporal field or temporal tunnel or temporal wake like they did, where would you go and what would you touch?
0: Hmm. I'm probably just going to think of something silly off the top of my head since I haven't had a long time to <laughs> to sit and consider that um you me- can edit
2: it you can edit this later
0: <laughs> yeah I can go <laughs> just edit a different chunk in here Ooh, <laughs> maybe I'll mention like a couple of things that have always interest me and and you know that would be cool to touch um I think the Titanic just because you know I saw that movie in theaters and it had a big impact on me when it came out I've been to Ireland where It's take where they show you where it like took off in Belfast. Like there's like an outline of this is where it launched. We saw that when we went to Ireland on our honeymoon. Um, And I also saw the exhibit uh, when it was in Vegas at the Luxor where they have like a big piece of that ship. Mm -hmm. And you get to see like a recreation of the, um, I guess, like the, the, the entrance of the ship to like the scene in the movie where they're coming down that staircase you can like take a picture there and stuff, and they have a they have it set up. Um, you even could like have a little piece of paper they gave you that tells you like which passenger you are, and then at the end you find out if you lived or died. Yeah, kind of morbid, but um, but yeah, just having that experience with it makes me feel like that would probably be something I'd want to go back and and see.
2: Yeah, the Titanic was something um, that I'd wanna I'd want to you know have tactile contact with. Um, growing up, I actually wanted to be an oceanographer. Oh, cool. And it was born out of watching Titanic. I saw that movie 10 times in theaters, and I had looked at all the schematics. I looked at the history of how it was developed and built and where it was built, the way in which they built it. Um, and I, and as a, I don't know, 9, 10-year-old, I was trying to figure out how I could engineer something to be able to raise it from the bottom of the Atlantic. <laughs>
0: a big big task for a 10 year old
2: right (laughs) um but yeah like i think that would really change my perspective especially you know having being someone that wanted to be an oceanographer at one point Mm -hmm. i think that that would really be awesome
0: so we have the same answer i guess for the most part the titanic
1: okay
2: right i love that and and and, you know keeping with with that scene of the phoenix where it was um damaged to a certain extent um i think it's another message to kind of take from just that scene is just because something is damaged doesn't mean that it's useless. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And um, maybe that's just the counselor in me coming out. Um, That's what I do whenever I'm adulting is I'm a a professional counselor.
0: Oh, that's really cool.
2: And um, that's the message that I I keep uh, communicating to the boys that I work with at a residential treatment center um, as well as the families like they think that something about them is broken. I'm like, yeah, just because something's broken doesn't mean that you just throw it away. You just figure out how you fix it and make it better. And that's exactly what Jordy Barkley, uh, and the rest of the engineering detail did. Um, they, they, I mean, granted, they had the benefit of knowing what it was supposed to look like, but they took something that was broken and they fixed it and made – a huge impact on the future for their organization. And I think that's something that's important for each and every one of us, both for us as people and for our families and the lives that we impact, regardless of what that looks like.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. Just side note, you're the second person I've had on this podcast that uh, does that for a living. Um, my other guest, uh, Thomas Olson, who I've had on here a couple times we did Back to the Future Part Two and we did Inception. He's a therapist. so mm-hmm. And that always comes up when we talk about movies. So, I don't know. I just think that's interesting. There's got to yeah. be a connection to that somewhere. I don't know what I it is know. yet, <laughs> but I think that's cool.
2: I, I don't know. I, don't, I, I love being a therapist. I love doing both private practice and working in uh, a treatment center where I get to impact the lives of young, young men and their families and their future. And it, it just gives me so much joy and fulfillment doing that kind of work. And um on a more fun or funner note uh <laughs> I'm I'm actually trying to get a science division uniform to do like my own like real life cosplay oh, so cool. so that I can actually be a counselor like whenever I'm walking like a convention floor or something like that
0: <laughs> I no I love that hey we have like chaplains you know what I mean so like that could kind of it's kind of like that a little
2: bit right and you know I this might be off topic I mean everything we're talking about is almost <laughs> off topic <It's> but fine. <laughs> in all in all to do like a minute clinic type of thing at like a convention like the therapist idea. the therapist is in like I'm an actual licensed professional counselor come on down let's talk about what's going on today
0: no it, it's cool because think about it they have that at like airports right and they have it mm-hmm. at, you know like in the workplace I think it's cool uh let's see where were we <laughs>
2: We were just talking about like damaged things and like how (laughs) and how like like, the phoenix. (laughs) Yeah, and how how the the phoenix was more or less like redeemed, right? So to speak.
0: Okay, cool. So uh, so back so back to where we were. Um, yeah, I think I think like you said, that's a really important part or or lesson to walk away with. So yeah, I like that. I like that. I like that you've incorporated that too.
2: Right. And that's, and, you know, that is a prime example of, I know I mentioned it in my introduction, but that's like the, like a prime example of something that I would use in my own pod, podcast and mm-hmm. talking about, you know, how do we talk about, how do we approach things that are broken?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I'm like, okay, well, let, let's look at what happened in Star Trek First Contact. Yeah. With like, with like this thing that was originally meant for destruction, now it's meant for peace Mm
1: -hmm. and that's
2: that's a whole nother thing with this movie too yeah you know you know what was once meant for wrong for evil has now been you know repurposed and made for good
0: Mm -hmm. and in a way that's like uh i want to say grounded you know because Mm -hmm. i think one thing that i used to hear a lot as a trekkie um from other people that weren't as into That weren't into it and thought it was dorky and lame (laughs) they would say things like well this future is overly optimistic it's it's a overly idealistic and um it's true in a sense that when you watch a lot of other science fiction um the future's more dystopian and i feel like we as a society feel like that's more believable and then star trek kind of went against the grain as being overly optimistic um or saying hey there's a possible bright future out there which is much more appealing, I think. But also, it always felt grounded to me in general. But I like in this movie how they're showing you how we get there. You know, the Earth is at this low point, um, basically, and, you know, people are all they're, they're dealing with like a time of war and things are really bad. And, you know, how could they possibly get better? Well, this like you said, this instrument of destruction is what tips that off. And it's funny watching uh, Cochrane's character in contrast to the Starfleet officers, how they're just they're, their mindset is just so different because they're in such a different place. And just I don't know. I just really like that.
2: <laughs> right. And and to keep up with like that dystopian um, like imagery, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if you've observed it. Um, I know I have. That, like, you look at movies um, from like maybe late seventies, definitely the eighties onward, up until about early two thousands,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and there's generally, not completely, but generally speaking, um, this bright future that people are are imagining. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I know we're talking about first contact, but I mean, just think about, um, the first part of back to the future too. Yeah. You know, like people think that like, there's going to be this amazing technology that it's going to be, you know, perfect weather or, to a certain extent that we can control this stuff. Um, I mean, you, even looking at, um, was it meet the Robinsons, um, which is a Disney, a, a Disney movie. And even then. Like there's this bright, hopeful outlook on the future. And that even was something like that,
0: the Jetsons, you know? <laughs> yes, Jetsons, <laughs> Jetsons absolutely. Really, really happy.
2: <laughs> so yeah, even even that cartoon, cartoon yeah. series, you know, there's this bright, hopeful outlook on the future. And that was something that Gene was all about. Like, mm-hmm. how can we better ourselves? How can we better society? How can we better just everything around us? I mean, we have to stay positive. We have to look to you know, what's ahead of us and not focus on the evil and the bad stuff that's happened behind us. Uh, We have to be cognizant of it, but don't focus on it. And I I, I don't know what happened, but just, again, something that I've observed is that it seems like there's been a more dark and negative outlook on the future in, um, you know, after the new millennium, Mm
1: -hmm. you know, like
2: after two thousand.
0: Yeah, I mean, you can see it a lot, I think, in literature um, when it turn- when it comes to sci-fi, like, you know, the way, uh, what's his name, Philip K. Dick wrote and, and other people like that, um, you know, you see it in, speaking of Philip K. Dick, uh, Blade Runner, you know, that's kind of become the more popular, you know, dystopian future model. And you had, you had uh, movies like that, or even like, you know, the Mad Max series, I guess that's more like post-apocalyptic on Earth. But I feel like in general, like, yeah, I don't know, it's, it's trended that way, like you're saying. And I feel like Gene Roddenberry was always like, against the grain in that way. Mm -hmm. I mean, even when you look at like Star Wars, which I think is generally pretty optimistic in its overall theme, the look of it is not, I mean, it's dirty, it's grimy, it's gritty. Um, which I think can make it feel more quote-unquote real to us sometimes. But I like Star Trek's model because, like you said, it, it paints an optimistic future. And there's other grounded parts of it, like the idea of Starfleet being, you know, uh, not military-driven in nature, but exploration-driven and stuff like that. I, I That stuff always appealed to me a little
2: bit more. Like the evolution of, of Cochrane. From being this womanizing drunk, basically, that only wants to invent this thing so he can see naked women and have tons of money.
0: <laughs> his own words.
2: Quite literally his own words. <laughs> um, and how he develops um, into this man that has this realization that there's something bigger than him by doing this this first warp flight. Um I think that's something that's important for us, us as a people to pay attention to also that not to focus on like where our struggles are kind of going back to like that whole, like, let's not focus on the negative. Let's focus on how can we improve, but also be aware of it. Um, and it's not an immediate thing. Like he doesn't become like this hero of Earth, so to speak, <laughs> a hero of the Federation. He doesn't become the founder of the United Federation of Planets or actually it's not the founder, but you get what I'm saying. He's not yeah. like this historic figure. Mm-hmm. You know, that's reaching to the stars. He's, he's not, Cochrane's not this historic figure as we know him in the 23rd and 24th century. Mm-hmm. He is still um, a really major slime ball that's starting to turn the page, mm-hmm. starting to turn the page, starting to turn over a new leaf by, by the time that first contact actually happens, by the time that he sees how tiny Earth is. And I'm just wondering what our world would look like, our, not just like our world, like the big sphere that we live in, but like our personal world would be if we started to realize how small things were and how mm-hmm. big things were outside of us and how we're part of something bigger than ourselves.
0: Well, I think that's the big message of Star Trek, too. I mean, that's why there's Starfleet and the Federation. You notice the characters are always talking about the, the pride in, in being a part of that organization mm-hmm. um and and i think that's unique to star trek from some of the other really popular franchises like even star wars i mean it's it's a team it's always a team effort and even though there's a, a captain um and arguably a main character it's like not really in the sense that you always feel like all the other characters are really important to whatever that goal is and that even beyond them starfleet is really important Mm-hmm. it's like their brand it's what they travel with it gives them confidence every new place that they go to they've got this set of rules and morals that you know kind of sets the stage for what what they do in their life um and so i think i think this is a, an extension of that with cochran like he's realizing like you said that there's something bigger than him a grander purpose and it's realized through starfleet and it kicks off with his invention
2: Right. And I don't I don't know if I'm being repetitive, like with these last like two scenes, but I mean, it's just something that like really resonates, um, especially thinking about it now, like talking on on this podcast about it Um, anyway. But I I think apart from from this realization that there's something bigger than ourselves, um, I think another like major overarching theme with this movie has to do with loyalty and friendship.
0: Mm-hmm, absolutely, and I think the best Star Trek movies do, like even in the franchise, like some of my favorite ones, make it real small and personal. They'll take some a really big plot and then bring it down to the importance of like friendship. You know, it's never really like the importance of family or even like a significant other. It's always friendship. You know, it's right. a big a big theme in Star Trek. So yeah, I totally see that.
2: And I think um, that's you really see that. You see, you really see that throughout the entire film. But I think some moments that really stick out are when um, everyone's like, we need to blow up the ship. We need to blow up this brand new, gorgeous, amazing enterprise (laughs) E."
0: They love to do that in these movies. (laughs) <laughs> Just make it go boom,
2: and we'll, that'll solve all the problems. That's
0: another. That's another. I think ingredient to like a good Star Trek film. It's like if to recap, it's like make it about friendship. Uh, I've got a couple others that I want to throw in later, but yeah, blowing up the Enterprise is like a really good one too. I feel like the best well, yeah. movies have it, them blowing it up. Like this isn't even important because like it's not even about this ship. It's about us, and I like that. Yeah, I agree.
2: But the Enterprise is its own character, and like it, is. it sacrificed you, itself. <laughs> it's like no, and and the Enterprise E is my my favorite ship.
0: Okay, so that that's my, your favorite model of that one.
2: Yes, yeah, yeah the Enterprise E is my favorite ship. Um, in fact, um, at one point, I had um, like a desktop theme where it would rotate through like different angles of the Enterprise E, and. It's so gorgeous. It's just it's a gorgeous ship. I love it so much. Um even though it's meant to be more militaristic as opposed to explorative, like the the prior, Um, Enterprise ships were Mm. see this Uh, is something
0: I don't notice even though I'm a huge Trekkie I never really noticed a lot about the different ships until I started watching with my husband who is not a Trekkie at all But when we started going through the movies and the shows he picks up on all that stuff like immediately Yeah, (laughs) he's like because he's he's a big car guy And so he just likes and he likes models too. So Mm -hmm. he he can tell like the difference between all of them I I did not notice that so I'll log that away (laughs) There you go. There you go. Learn something yep. new every day.
2: And it, even with um, going with um, uh, like even the the original, like the Kirk enterprise, like the really old mm-hmm. enterprise that was like in service for 30 or 40 some odd years. Um, when it went from that even to, I think, the A, which was still a constitution class. I mean, even that, like the way that it was even – like refit to a certain extent was a little bit more militaristic than than the original enterprise the oh, just the 1701 okay. enterprise oh that's interesting at least that i mean that's how i looked at it i mean yeah I, no i think
0: that's good context to have that's something i i don't necessarily pick up on naturally but it definitely makes sense
2: but the 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 part on the bridge like i was starting to say where it's like just let's blow the thing up
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know and um Picard says to Worf, you're a coward. Oh, yeah. And we all know that Worf is the grumpiest Klingon in the entire galaxy.
0: <laughs> Easily triggered by things like that, understandably. Right.
2: A Klingon never smiles. <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that he had so much self-control to where he says, if you were any other man, I would kill you where you stand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, talk about loyalty, man.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And and you know, not only loyalty, but mutual respect, which I think is something else that permeates throughout this film in particular.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, just this mutual respect that, you know, if anyone, and we all know that that Wharf would totally kill someone if yeah, it came. Yeah, he doesn't out play to,
0: around. He's cleaning No, around.
1: yeah.
2: No. I mean, if someone said that he was a... If anyone else called him a coward, he's busting out his Batleth and he's going to decapitate that son. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But the fact that he has so much respect for Picard, so much admiration and loyalty to him, that he was willing just to take it. Yeah. I, I don't know. That That's... It's just... It's cool because Michael Dorn just delivered that line so brilliantly. And I had a chance to meet him a couple of years ago at Fan Expo and um, back to therapy. I actually did a little like um, table side therapy with him whenever we were talking about Nemesis and how much he disliked filming Nemesis. And he's like, why does my character keep coming back and forth between deep space nine and firing photon torpedoes and then going back. to So it was, it was kind of funny, but <laughs> Michael, Michael Dorn's a great actor. I love him. He and, is. The way that that scene in particular is one that stands out to me a lot okay. throughout that film.
0: Yeah, I can totally see that. I I think, you know, you talked about um, their mutual respect for each other and their friendship really coming through. You know, I personally think a lot of that has to do not just with the writing, um, or even the acting, but the cast itself. Mm -hmm. I know I've heard uh, Marina Sirtis and Gates McFadden speak at a con before. And if you haven't heard them, like I highly recommend it. They are such awesome women to listen to. And they just have so many cool things to say. But Marina Sirtis mentioned that, you know, one thing that sets this cast apart, even from the other Star Trek cast, is that they were truly a family.
2: Like Mm -hmm. as in
0: they were all in each other's weddings. I mean, it it went, it ran deep and they're still close. Um, And that's not to take anything away from any of the other casts. Um, But I don't think any other cast had this connectivity, this loyalty and love for each other the way they did. And I I think that really showed through on screen in the show and in the movies. I feel like you could feel that these people genuinely cared for and loved each other. And I don't know. I just think that's another reason that this movie is one of the best ones. I mean, it's directed by one of them. And I just think that 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 feeling comes through
2: when uh, Brent Spiner came to Fan Expo Dallas Fan Expo a couple of years ago. I think it was like what a year and a half, two years ago maybe.
0: Mm, yeah, I think it was a while ago.
2: It was, yeah, it was I don't around, think I it, went then. I think it was just before um the second Independence Day movie came out, Resurgence. Um, um I just I didn't have the money to like get a picture or a photo op or anything. I just wanted to meet the dude. And that dude is so sarcastic. It's not even funny. But he was I was. I asked about how, um, like how, like how he was still in contact with um, some of his castmates, and he had told me that he had recently had a um, like a steak dinner or something with uh, Sir Patrick Stewart,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, and just having a good time. I mean, like Brent was was I think Pat Patrick's um, best man yeah, in, in it's his wedding crazy. or something.
0: And, like, that's not the only time that happened. Like, I've seen pictures right. of all of them at each other's weddings, and they really are a family. I even feel like, maybe this is off topic, but even the way they embrace the fandom is really moving. Like, I, in one of the behind-the-scenes of this movie, Brent Spiner was talking about that he feels Trekkies have a bad rap, that they're crazy, and he's like, it's not any crazier than, you know, going to a football game or a basketball game. He's like, those people get angry and they yell, and they're aggressive. He's like, these fans are like really nice and friendly and normal like he was just so cool just how appreciative he was of being a part of something like this he felt like it was special and i wonder if some of that just comes from the experience he had on set and the friends that he made
2: i wonder what um football fans would think if we told them that every time they put on a jersey that they're cosplaying football players
0: (laughs) Mind's blown.
2: <laughs> no, does not compute.
0: <laughs> That's so funny. I love that. <laughs> I'm going to say that from now on.
2: Oh, so you're cosplaying a football player this Sunday.
0: <laughs> so, it's like, cool. well, you're, you're not really playing the game, right? So why are you wearing the uniform? Uh-uh. <laughs> okay.
1: Okay.
2: Um, but apart from that, I think the the other the other man, there's like two other scenes that I just want to talk, maybe two other scenes that uh, I want to talk about. And then we can talk about whatever else you want to talk about. (laughs) Um, But it's when Lily is in uh, the observation lounge with Picard. Mm -hmm. And it's after, again, after like the whole, like let's blow up the dang ship type thing. And um, there's like this, This conversation is going back where like some Moby Dick um, examples are drawn Mm -hmm. about, you know, like, oh, Captain Ahab just got to go find his whale.
1: Yeah.
2: And how he gets so overcome with anger, maybe even rage that he takes his um, phase rifle and he destroys the case where um, the, the other ships like the golden ships that bore the name enterprise were, and you see the enterprise D just swing around um, from its most recent destruction in generations. And you just see this trauma, like the, you are seeing him try to communicate his trauma, his Hurt his betrayal with everything that happened with um, him in the Borg six, seven years earlier. Mm -hmm. And that is such a powerful scene. And I can't get over like the monologue that he delivers. Um, You know, the line must be drawn here speech. You know, I will not sacrifice the enterprise. We've made too many compromises already. Too many retreats. They invade our space and we fall back. They assimilate entire worlds and we fall back not again and the line must be drawn here and i can't Mm -hmm. do a british yeah (laughs)
1: that's (laughs) okay yeah
2: this (laughs) far no father and i will make them pay for what they've done
0: (laughs) i think that was pretty good
1: (laughs) yeah no that
2: speech is so powerful and gets me every single time like you Mm -hmm. feel his conviction Mm -hmm. you feel his hurt you feel his purpose all wrapped up into one because he knows what's at stake and what right. will happen. Like what alternate, what what history, what future history will be
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, if he do, if him and his crew do not succeed in ending it now mm-hmm. when the future of the Federation is supposed to be starting.
0: Yeah. No, that's very true. I, I do really like that scene. And on a side note, I really like Lily actually. Um, I feel like she's um, undersold in this movie a little bit. I almost wanted to see her after this. You know, I I like the relationship that she has with Picard where it's like almost a will-they-won't-they. But she's also like constantly calling him out because she has that ability because she's not tiptoeing around him the way that everyone else is because everyone else knows what Picard went through. Um, Mm -hmm. But she doesn't have that background. Like he can explain it to her, but she'll, she'll never understand the way that the crew does the way that they've Mm -hmm. learned how to kind of shrink back and not say anything when he's going there. Um, She doesn't have that filter. So she just goes for it. And she's also living in extremely tumultuous time. So she's just kind of, she's a little to the point, but it it weirdly in that moment, it's kind of what he needs to like snap him out of it. Um, Mm -hmm. And I just thought their relationship was very interesting. And I wanted to like almost see more of it. Like I feel like a lot of people really play up the, Data and Borg Queen thing, which I think is like, maybe more exciting, but I don't know if it's as nuanced as the relationship between Lily and Picard. I think, as I've gotten older, I've gone back and I've really liked their dynamic. So just wanted to throw that in there.
2: I didn't like Alfrey Woodard at first um, in that role. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, looking back on it, like, looking at the variety of the captain's ladies in like yeah. all these films, you know? Um, I mean, we have bond girls, but I mean, what do we have for, I mean, is it captain's ladies? Is that what we're calling it? <laughs> I don't it, know.
0: Yeah. It feels more like a lot of times they're a little more like plot devicey, I guess. Like a little bit, but with her, I felt like because they don't actually have like a real true romantic connection, not really. It, it sort of makes her in this weird in between where she was almost more of just like a friend. Yeah. And, uh, I think that was sort of a precursor to where relationships would probably get more complex in the future. I mean, this is like 1996, and I feel like now uh, leading ladies in films are a little bit more nuanced, like she is. But back then, it was probably like when you first it was pushing see it, the envelope. Yeah, it was pushing the envelope a little bit, and plus, she looks like really young. But I, I looked up her age, and she's only like seven years younger than him. Like she's, she's just ages phenomenally well, (laughs) but I I thought that too. I was like, oh, she's too young for him. And like, just, I had a lot of thoughts when I was younger seeing it, but now when I'm older, I'm like, oh, okay. Like I look at this relationship differently in 2019 (laughs) than I did in, you know, whatever, whenever I first saw it.
2: Yeah. And like, like I was saying, you know, I didn't really like the character at first. I'm like, man, she's just pushy (laughs) and like, (laughs) and you know, I enjoyed Donna Murphy um, mm-hmm. in Insurrection.
1: Okay.
2: Um, but like, after watching even like all of J.J. Trick, like Alfre Woodard as Lily was just fantastic, mm-hmm. and she's—I mean, she is one more reason why I love this film. Yeah. And why I, and why I keep coming back to it. Um, the casting is just. Phenomenal. I mean, we already got to know the characters for those that were already into Trek and watched next gen. Mm-hmm. I mean, we already knew the characters, but they were more developed, you know, throughout generations and definitely throughout first contact. Um, and just how well um, James Cromwell and Alfrey Woodard. Is it Woodard? Right. I think, I think so. it's Woodard. Let
0: me look. Let me look really quick. I'm pretty sure it because is. Yeah, I've really only seen her in this movie. So I wasn't like super familiar with her character. So let's see.
2: Come on. Hey, it, it is.
0: I, I did up. not realize Adam Scott was in this movie. <laughs> I'm looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> that is really funny. Her name is really far down. I don't even see it.
1: Did I see, see it.
2: it. Okay. Yeah, okay. it's it's Alfrey Woodard, yeah. Okay, okay. Um, but like how well James Cromwell and Alfrey Woodard both how they both complemented the ensemble cast
0: yeah because they're both sort of like an injection of like real world in a way like they feel mm-hmm. contemporary you know in a way that the Starfleet cast members don't I mean they act and they operate in a certain way that feels futuristic and theatrical and then I feel like James Cromwell and Alfred Wittard are sort of more understated real quote unquote performances and so I think it's a good balance to what to what you're seeing with the cast for sure
2: yeah. And I think the, um, the final like scene and a half,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, is, is, um, when they're trying to, when, when the board queen is trying to destroy the Phoenix and mm-hmm. trying to prevent first contact and you're, you're torn with data. Cause one, you don't know what the heck he's, he's doing. Like, is he giving in to, you know, the seduction of the of the board queen,
1: yeah,
2: um, with her giving him a more um, tangible, realized vanity mm-hmm. um, that he's been chasing since he was first, you know, uh, turned on, you know,
1: yeah,
2: uh, when he was first um, operational, and. I really enjoyed seeing that. And I'm sure Brent enjoyed it also because he didn't have to wear as much makeup (laughs) on his face. He didn't have to wear like yellow contacts or whatever, like he normally would. Um, He didn't have to have like this part of his hair slicked back like he normally did. Um, So that was cool to see um, just watching him like be like two faced, you know, being like Batman's two face. That Mm -hmm. was cool. Um, But it was just as equally terrifying wondering like, wait, is Picard is he is he really about to turn into a drone? Yeah, you know, did like she fully convert him to only listen to her now and uh, and then like just seeing how like jacked Patrick Stewart was whenever he was like climbing up that that cable or whatever. Right, I'm like it's dang impressive. dude, like you're <laughs> like fifty something. I wish I could do that. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, and, yeah. I totally agree. <laughs>
2: But like that, that was just really cool. Like the, um, the like unknown, the what if, you know, is this all over? I mean, we're minutes away from this movie ending and wait, are we about to like be screwed? And like, are we about to have like a Borg universe type of thing? (laughs) Yeah. It, it, It was terrifying. I mean, like part of me knew that it wasn't. But I mean, like when you're first watching that, it's like,
0: Argh! yeah, it's like, how are they going to get out of this? I know they have exactly. to, but how? Yeah, no, I think. Yeah. And that's something especially like when you're a fan of the show. I mean, that like you're saying that's such a huge part of Data's character is his endeavor to be human. And then he meets this race that's like in a way past that, you know, they, they view uh, the things that he wants to the, I guess the ideals that he's looking for that would make him human are the very things that the board wants to eliminate and sees as a weakness. So they're presenting him with like a third option, I guess.
2: So, you know, like Data um, and like whatever he's experiencing with the Borg Queen, it's kind of a parallel with the um, Christian tradition of faith that you read about or that, you know, people of the Christian faith read about um, whenever you're dealing with the, um, the story of the temptation of Christ. You know, you have um, this enemy – you know, that is written about in, in this holy text, um, saying, you know, if you do this, you'll get that. Um, like you'll get all this power or you'll get all this influence. Or if you jump off of this, um, you'll be safe or you will, or won't be safe type of thing. And I think that there's, regardless of if you look at it from like that faith tradition or not, I think that there is that, um, That parallel, even though um, Gene Roddenberry um, is admittedly more humanistic um, and maybe even agnostic or atheist um, in the grand scheme of things. But I think I think that that could be one way of looking at it from like a faith tradition. If someone was skeptical about sci fi um, and Star Trek in general, like by hearing those arguments, that's more humanistic. I think I think it's not as overt as that I think they're just good messages in general and that's just something that came to mind just yeah thinking thinking about it in general um, and then everything that we've learned about these characters just builds on it and it just shows that there is this optimistic outlook for the future when we can you know recognize our differences whatever those differences are mm-hmm. whether it's you know a reliance on science or faith mm-hmm. or both right. you know um, that we can all better each other, that we can all work better together, and we can accomplish seemingly insurmountable things together in the case of the enterprise, you know, and the Borg invasion of Earth in um the 21st century. And then and then, of course, like the really big happy ending with, <laughs> you know, first contact where our our womanizing, you know, founder, um, realizes like hey holy crap there's there are these weird like pointy-eared people that do this weird like v thing with their hand and i gotta i don't know i don't know how to do i'm gonna shake their hand the way that it ends i just love because it shows this really great um albeit short character arc for zephram cochran and seeing where he came from and seeing and starting to see where he's going to go with this first step, we've mm-hmm. seen first war- we've seen the first warp flight. Now we're seeing the first step towards the realization of the Federation of Planets, Starfleet, and beyond. And you know, I love how it was shot. Um,
1: mm-hmm. I
2: agree. Where I love how that was shot, how it was lit, mm-hmm. um, the the gravitas that went with that scene, and how it ends with Picard in his 21st century outfit, mid 21st century outfit, um, you know, saying, you know, it's time to beam up and, you know, away they go. And the only, the, I think the only thing I don't like about the movie and it is like literally one thing. That's That's it. That's
0: fine. That's fine.
2: Is whenever they're on the bridge and he just says, Make it so, or Not or it's not make it so um, It's not even engage Oh my gosh, am I really forgetting this? But it's not one of his standard lines for Having them leave
0: Oh no, I didn't even notice that I have to yeah. go back and watch it again
2: um, I, And I've seen this like over 200 times You'd think I'd remember it, holy that's cow okay.
0: It's usually when you're recording, that's when you forget Things that you know, for sure <laughs> but, I've had that yeah. same experience
2: And it, it just drives me bonkers But apart from that like, the, the, what, two seconds of that dialogue is the only thing that bothers me about this movie.
0: <laughs> well, then that's pretty good.
2: Um, it's, I think it is, and I might be biased, but I think this is one movie that will stand the test of time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there are a great amount of, like, let's nix that. I think there are a plethora of, messages that can be taken from this and applied, um, individually, um, and at a societal level, um, if people would just, you know, people that are against star Trek, if they could just ignore star Trek, like the title of the movie (laughs) and just watch it for the content and the dialogue, there's so much that this movie could do, um, in, in the larger conversation that we're having with each other.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think that's true. And I think, you know, that that's sort of like the weird secret of Star Trek, isn't it? That it does have all these great messages that I feel like people kind of don't see if they're not Trekkies. They're like, oh, it's weird and nerdy. And uh, it's about ships and pointy ears. And it's like, man, it's so much bigger than that. I mean, I where think are the that's...
2: lightsabers?
0: Yeah. where, <laughs> As you said, where are the lightsabers? <laughs> um, but I think, you know, that's why the show has... You know, you talked about Trekkies earlier. That's why it's it's uh, inspired people to become doctors and um, to go into, like, the Navy and all these, like, really incredible stories that you hear. Because, I mean, it does have, like, a really positive message that is, you know, applicable to your life in a way. I mean, I know that sounds dramatic, like I'm drinking the Kool-Aid here, but, I mean... It does, and I think it, it, it influences people positively, so I, I agree. It's like, take that stigma away from it and just enjoy this universe. It's really fun, and it's optimistic and uplifting. I mean, we've said, I think you could do like a drinking game to how many times I've said optimistic, but yeah. Probably, <laughs> I agree with and you.
2: me with loyalty and, <laughs> you know, wider conversation, right?
0: Warm fuzzies. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: But like, you know, with, with the uh, the documentary that we keep referring to, if you haven't seen it, you need to go watch it. Yeah. For, um, but I remember it was early in my marriage that um, my wife wasn't interested in, in Star Trek at all. I mean, she's not as nuts about it as I am, So to be fair. Um, but I, I was watching it in our old apartment in Midland, Texas, and she I think she came home from like hanging out with one of her friends or came home from work or dance or school. I don't know what it was, but it was something. She came home. It was late, in the, late at night and I was watching it and she sits down and she starts watching it with me. And she was just blown away to your point about the number of people that were inspired to become astronauts and physicists yeah. and all these careers in basically STEM um, yeah. that inspired them to teach, that inspired them to go into the medical field. And she's like, wow, I mean, I'm, I don't know if I'm saying it exactly how she said it, but she was just blown away by that. And that's what led her to wanting to watch Star Trek with me. Mm-hmm. So um, back in 2013, uh, no, 2011, 11 or 12, when this was going down, we started watching original series because I'd never seen original series. Like it looked way too campy. I'm like, no, man, I don't want to I don't want to watch this. And we did and she enjoyed it and then we binged next gen and then we i think we marathoned all every single one of the original series and next gen films over a weekend and she doesn't like it as much as i do but she has a deep appreciation for it i was going to um,
0: say i've seen her in a uniform so
2: yeah yeah she is my <laughs> mzati for sure
0: <laughs> that's awesome i love that yeah. Well, um, did you? Were there any other scenes, or that that was like the final scene? I think that you. Yeah, that was
2: that was really it. I mean,
0: okay.
2: Like, e- each scene is I can appreciate in its own way. I mean, like, um, I mean, I don't think we need to get into like too much meaning, uh, messages, morals, or meanings about it. Like um, the people over at uh, Mission Log would on their podcast, but I mean. <laughs> Like, each scene, like, the way that it's lit, like, the cinematography, I mean, it's just so well done. Like, I know that the cinematographer that they hired, that Jonathan Frakes hired for this, um, he had, like, zero knowledge of Trek. And he went back and he picked, like, different cinematographer and producer friends of his to watch, like, old Star Trek movies with.
1: Oh.
2: Um, And how, like, they did shots in those to – kind of understand the history of that mm-hmm. and to understand like the look of those films so that he could, um, be true to Trek films, but also, you know, create its own, create, create an original look, so to speak for first contact. So that, that was really cool too. And, um, one like horror scene that I just, I love is whenever, um, even though they're not red shirts, the red shirts of this movie um, (laughs) in engineering. They're wearing their yellow, of course, their gold operations uniform. Yeah. And they're going to like, is it hot in here? And the guy goes up and to check it. He crawls and asking, like, is someone on this deck or whatever? And lady like you can't see her off screen. She's saying something. And then out of nowhere, the guy's just, you know, assimilated by the Borg and she go, goes up and she just screamed I just loved how that scene was shot how that scene was directed um and it's just it's so it's such a short scene but I just I love it like especially with the horror aspect of it. Yeah. I don't even like horror films I, I'm a big political thriller fan in terms of like genre mm-hmm. so um it definitely had the thriller the psychological thriller type aspect to it in certain parts of this film
0: yeah I can totally see that yeah I think I think uh, there's so many things about this movie that make it so great. I guess I'm going to save my closing thoughts for the last two questions. So that brings me to my last couple of questions for you. Uh, I feel like you've kind of already answered this the whole time we've been talking, but why do you love this movie so much? Why do you think you've seen it so many times? What gives it rewatch value for you?
2: Um, First off it's the score. Mm -hmm. Um, The score I think is what makes or break a film. Um, or really any, um, media endeavor really, Mm -hmm. um, because you can have lines on a page and the actors in all their brilliance can deliver them, um, and like hit their mark and all that, but it's the score that really sells it and conveys the emotion, like truly conveys the underlying emotion that's taking place, not just in that, in that scene, but throughout the film. So it's definitely, it's definitely Goldsmith and his brilliance of the film score that keeps me coming back. I just love listening to it. I have it on, um, I'm old. I have it on CD. I have it, um, ripped and I have it on my phone. I listen to it on Spotify, on Google play, all that stuff. And over and over again, like while I'm driving and I just, I love it. It's, it's a brilliant score. Um, that's part of the reason I keep coming back.
1: Awesome.
2: Um, Uh, Apart from that, like just the story of, of the hope um, of a hopeful future in this yearning to better ourselves. And then this, um, this just, I don't, I, I, I don't know how to phrase it. It's just like this, um, without words type of yearning, so to speak. I don't know how to say it. It's just, there's just something unspoken about this movie that, gets me every single time and that keeps me coming back. It's just something unspoken about it. And I don't know what it is. And I don't know if I ever will, but I just know that I love it and I want more of it each time that I'm, I'm viewing it, whether by myself or, you know, with my, my friends and family. And I do make a point. um, I have a point of, I make a point of watching this film every first contact day. That's how I celebrate oh, that's first contact awesome.
0: day. Which I think is the director's or somebody's birthday, somebody's son's birthday, one of the writers okay. or some, somebody. Yeah. I read that somewhere, but anyway, go ahead.
2: So I, I make a point of watching it, um, which is, uh, for those listening that might not know, it's April 5th of each year. Um, first contact day is a, actually April 5th, 2063, so we're minus so many years away from it. We're minus, what, this is 19. So minus 44 years from this going down.
1: It's coming. It's coming.
2: Yeah, it'll be here. It'll just wait. It'll just wait. April 5th. So every April 5th, um, I'll watch Star Trek First Contact. So that's awesome. So that's just a fun little fact. Um, I think that's that's it. I mean, I don't know what else to say about like what keeps me coming back to this film.
0: No worries. Yeah, I think... For me, I feel like this movie, we've kind of talked about it a few times, but I think it really does a good job of making the message of Star Trek into a very digestible film. Um, I think it adds all the best elements from the series, too, the Next Generation series. You know, we get the Borg, which I mentioned before, is like a big part of that show. Um, I think adding a, that little part with the holodeck even is kind of cool because they spend so much time in the holodeck on that series specifically, you know, one of the most popular and best episodes they have, I think is Casino Royale. Um, okay. So <laughs> okay. oh, <uh-oh>, controversial. Um, <laughs> but, but I think because they've spent so much time in the holodeck, you know, sneaking that into the movie with the Borg, I thought was really cool. Like it was a really nice callback uh, for fans and uh Yeah, I just think it it encapsulates everything about the message. It's giving you the first contact with um, Vulcans, which is huge if you're a Trekkie. And it's just sending that message of why Starfleet's there and how important it is and what a big impact they can have. So that's kind of, I think, why I keep coming back to it. And I think it's a good gateway drug for people that are not Trekkies. I think it's a good movie to start with. Um,
2: Absolutely. Oh, go ahead. Did you have you heard the story about Robert Picardo and his cameo on this in this movie?
0: No, go for it.
2: Okay, so Robert Picardo, who um, is the actor who portrayed the EMH mm-hmm. doctor in um, Star Trek Voyager, um, they were they were still so they were filming um, in similar on the same I think on the same lot in different studios.
0: Okay, uh,
2: they're at Paramount, and so Voyager at that time was the most advanced ship in the fleet is my understanding
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, where they had like the neural gel packs and you know, there's faster processing speed for the computer and blah, 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 that cool stuff. And that's where the EMH was able to more or less function. It was like the most advanced uh, backup doctor attached to the most advanced ship. And Picard and Robert Picardo kept talking to a variety of actors uh, like Frakes, um, um, Stewart, Um, I think he talked to, like, Brandon Braga also and a few other producers, and he kept saying, "If, if Voyager has the most advanced EMH or the most advanced capabilities, and I'm paraphrasing here, why doesn't the Enterprise E? Like, why couldn't there be an EMH on the Enterprise E? So he was more or less petitioning for himself to be in the movie. <laughs> That's awesome. So he kept bugging people about this idea that he had, like all this headcanon he had about the EMH, basically, and that is the actual story of how he got his part in First Contact.
0: Hey, his persistence paid off. I love Absolutely. it.
2: Absolutely.
1: <laughs> That's and so funny. Ethan,
2: and then Ethan Phillips, of course, who um, was the concierge in The Holodeck, who was also Neelix in yeah, Voyager?
0: that's how I remember him the most. Yeah, yeah, that's so funny. I love that, but it's true. He has he had a good point. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, my second question for you is: What is your like elevator pitch for this movie? Like, if someone hasn't seen it, um, and, and answer this however you want. They're a brand new fan; they've never seen Star Trek, or they have seen Star Trek. Like, h- how do you pitch this movie to people that haven't seen it?
2: Okay, you said an elevator speech. How many floors are we going up? We going up (laughs) one, we going up twelve.
0: You know, that's up to you. This is your (laughs) this is your uh, theoretical situation, so you interpret that how you will.
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. This is a Star Trek film that can reach both Star Trek fans. And Star Wars fans alike, I agree. It it has an equal balance of action and intellect, mm-hmm. and it ha- and while also maintaining optimism um, that is severely lacking today.
1: Yeah,
0: you know, I think it does a good job of by having the side by side characters, you know, Cromwell and and uh, Lily. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. Cochrane and R- Lily, mm-hmm. um, sort of as foils for this idealistic future. I think that helps a lot with it. Like, I, I feel mm-hmm. like even as a Star Trek fan, like, I- I'm so obsessed with this world that I'm all in at this point, you know? It's like, I pretty much believe it's possible, but it's cool to see it from the perspective of people that are in a worse situation, because I think it's easy to sell this idea as like, oh, someday we won't need money and everything will be good. And it's like, really? How do we get there? And so this movie kind of shows you like maybe one scenario of how to get there. And I think it can help people understand why fans like it so much and why they're so optimistic about it.
2: Yeah, I love Lily's line where she's like, um, it took me six months to get enough to build a three meter cockpit.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and
2: and while she's walking through like this, like extravagant, you know, hallway of the Enterprise-E. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would say I think everything you said was really good that, you know, it, it, it is sort of a movie for the, the bridges that gap um, mm-hmm. between fans and uh, and yeah, they need to check it out. It's 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 a lot of people's favorites for a reason
2: absolutely yeah it's it's definitely mine if you couldn't tell by listening to this it's definitely mine
0: (laughs) (laughs) i think i think yeah i think people can tell that you like this movie um well chase i want to thank you uh for coming on the show and for talking about this movie um really appreciated having you on and really enjoyed the conversation uh if you want to recap real quick where can people find you
2: so, um, you can find me um, if you want to check out any of my cosplay stuff. You can check me out with uh, Sharp Cosplay on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Um, I also do, I don't even think I mentioned this in the beginning, but I think um, it's worth mentioning that um, I have my own podcast as well. Um, yeah. And um, it's called Reframed Podcast. And you can listen to that on uh, Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, um, Google Play pretty much wherever you might want to listen to a podcast it's called reframed podcast and um it is a podcast that uses pop culture media to talk about mental health themes issues and topics and my very first episode was from a season six um episode of star trek the next generation so check that out um and if you want to reach out to me and connect with me on you know with cosplay you can do that um if you want to email me you can email me at reframedpod at gmail.com
0: that's great i i love the concept of your show i'm definitely going to give it a listen that's really awesome
2: sure and if you want to be on sometime i'd love to have you
0: i would love to this is like right up my alley i really i really like that you're going deep with this stuff because i i agree i mean that's pretty much why i do the podcast is i think that there's a lot to be explored uh, with stuff like that and i love that you're putting mental health front and center i think that's awesome so once again chase thanks so much
2: Thank you so much, and again, thank you for making this a dream come true. Uh, sure. When I first found out that you were doing this, and I think <laughs> I think we were talking about this, um, and how first contact was like taken by someone. I was like, "Dang it, man!"
0: It was Tim Rooney. Tim, Tim's listening.
2: <laughs> I and actually I'm...
0: reached out to him personally, and I said, "Tim, is it okay?" And I explained who you were, and he was like, "That man sounds more qualified." In the world of Star Trek, I humbly give this movie back. So he was really cool about it. Well, Plus, he's been on here a bunch of times. So I was like, Tim, we've done a lot thank of you, your Tim. movies.
2: Thank <laughs> you, Tim, for making this possible. Um, thank you, Lisa, for having me. It's been a pleasure. It's been an honor to be able to have this conversation with you. Um, and can't wait to, you know, maybe even continue the conversation on your Facebook group.
0: Awesome. we Will do. Talk to you next time.
2: All right. Take care.
1: Bye.